We have just returned, most of us, from sharing in a great American holiday, this ritual of giving thanks. I agree with Jean that it's got a lot of moral ambiguity in it. It's a, it is a mythical story. It's a myth that we would like to be true, and so there's much work to do to uh, sit down together with the whole human family in genuine friendship and equality. Nevertheless, there is a beauty in this holiday as we gather with family and friends, and uh, in a way, perhaps it should be called the Feast of Gluttony. I don't know, but it's, it is a wonderful thing to, to share a meal with those that we know and care for. And at least somewhere in that mix, at some moment, we may give thanks. A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, a wonderful reenactment of a debate between a famous lawyer named Clarence Darrow and a theologian named George Foster. By the way, Foster was a very liberal theologian for in his time. He was a big, he was very strong on the importance and value of science. He was, he was actually a Baptist, but he, he was a liberal uh, theology professor at the University of Chicago. So this is part of our 175th anniversary. It was a reenactment of a debate that actually took place in our church 100 years ago in 1917. Not in this building, but in our church. The topic they had that night was, is life worth living? An excellent Thanksgiving topic, I might say. And so they really did a wonderful job of exploring that. And I'm hoping that we can uh, make a tape available to people later to, to see that reenactment wonderfully done by uh, Jean Mielkowski and Jean Bork. Because of that, I just got off on such a line of thought that I wanted to explore something related to that topic, not exactly the same thing. I want to frame the question a little bit differently. And I want to frame it as the question of meaning. And so the question I'd like to play with for a while today is, does life have meaning? Which is not exactly the same thing, but it's related. Does life have meaning or is it meaningless? In this debate of 100 years ago, the issue revolved around a couple of questions. One of them is the tension between science and religion, which has not gone away, strangely enough. It's still there. We're still arguing about that. Um, so that's an interesting fact about our culture. And then another question that was central in their debate, which was posed by Clarence Darrow, is the question about whether there is something good in the universe. Is there something good in the universe itself that we could in some way trust? The opening rounds of this debate centered around traditional Christian doctrine. In other words, is there a supernatural God in heaven who has created us all and who will, 
at some point send us all to heaven or hell. There are various versions of this story, but that's one simple one. And the assumption was made in the debate that, uh, at least at one point, that optimism depends upon this being true. Now this is, remember this is 1917. So if this is true, that there is such a loving God somewhere who cares for us and we're going to get to go to heaven afterwards, after this rough time on earth, then one could justify being optimistic about life. And then the argument was that if it's not true, then there is no justification for optimism and we should be pessimists. I'm kind of oversimplifying it, but that was the general idea, at least in the opening rounds. No God, pessimism wins by a knockout. And in this debate, Clarence Darrow argues that there is no basis whatsoever to believe in such a supernatural God, even if some people find comfort in such beliefs. There just aren't any grounds for that. Clarence Darrow refers to such people as cheerful idiots. My understanding is that he was not an excessively tactful person. Not excessively, anyway. <laughs> now, Foster, who, by the way, as I said, was a strong supporter of science, argues that he can support the case for optimism even without God. He can, he can do that without God. But he waits until the very end to say how he's going to do that. And it's kind of an existentialist argument, I think. And I think I'm going to save that one for another day and go off in a slightly different direction. Because Clarence Darrow also argues that consciousness itself brings suffering. Consciousness itself brings suffering. The animals do fine, he says, in their unawareness. They're not aware that they're individuals, they're not aware that they're separate from everything else, and they're not aware that they're going to die. At least that's the way uh, we might imagine. But we human beings, once we've achieved this self-awareness of who we are, have been miserable ever since. Even though it brought a lot of advantages like technology and good poetry and artwork and so forth, uh, we have been unhappy. And Clarence Darrow says that the best things he knows to relieve the unhappiness are whiskey, uh, smoking his pipe, which he says is the one that lasts the longest, or giving a good speech. But he also says that these are all very temporary. They're not a solution to the problem, but they're temporary relief. Curiously enough, this argument that Clarence Darrow uses that once human beings attained self-awareness, our sense of alienation began. That's his argument. That argument, interestingly enough, is an argument that in 2017, many theologians believe is contained in the story of Genesis in the Bible. The same argument. So here's how that would go. Adam and Eve were happy in the garden. Everything was fine, you know, running around naked, but they didn't realize it. 
This is the pre-self-awareness state. Or it can be viewed that way. And then what happens is when they get knowledge from eating the forbidden fruit, that's that moment of sort of a jump in evolution where Adam and Eve, representing all of us, become aware of ourselves and we start to know what's going on and think about things and give names to things. Naming is kind of a symbol for that kind of awareness. Naming means splitting up the world. That's what naming means. This is the lectern and this isn't. So once you start splitting up the world, then the alienation sets in and you see yourself as a separate being. And then they realize they were naked. That's what it says in Genesis. And they were ashamed, it says, and they covered them. In other words, they had lost their innocence. Just actually the way Clarence Darrow says it happened, only he's not talking about the book of Genesis. So it's an interesting paradoxical coincidence that this actually has become a biblical and theological argument in the hundred years since they had their debate. So Clarence Darrow, I think, got it absolutely right that with consciousness comes the experience of psychological pain. So it is striking, I think, that once one lets go of the idea of literal interpretations of Genesis or any of these other old texts, then these new ways of looking them at them become possible. So I want to share an idea this morning about how we might find something good in the universe that encourages us in our lives, which is one of the questions posed in the debate, without a supernatural God or the promise of heaven. I want to explore that. I'm not arguing, by the way, that there is no God. That's not my argument at all. Uh, that, I'm going to leave that one up to you. I need overtime, actually, to preach on that. Uh, but I want to argue that with or without the God, there's, there's certainly the possibility of meaningful uh, resources in our human experience and in the universe. Take, for example, beauty. Beauty is a human experience that virtually all of us have had. We have witnessed a sunset that was just so gorgeous, it transformed our awareness, at least for a while. We, most of us have heard a musical performance at some time, which was so beautiful and so overwhelming that we feel liberated from our uh, anxiety or whatever we might be going through and we just experience the beauty of the music. Many times we have walked in the woods and we've just walked along the trails and right now you can walk through the leaves and hear the leaves rustling and you can see the colors and you can see the sun uh, beaming down on the various colors and sometimes our spirits are just grabbed by that beauty. And so it, it's, a, it's a, a meaningful experience. It's an experience that fills us with a sense of fulfillment or satisfaction, appreciation. This experience does not depend on any theological position whatsoever. 
It's neither theistic nor atheistic, although you could look at it either way if you wish, and it'll be fine. It's something that is part of our experience. I've been fascinated by this for years and wondering, did we invent this somehow? Or is, the, is this something that's in nature or do we just make up this idea of beauty and impose that on nature? And I don't totally know the answer to that question. I did see a wonderful book in a bookstore yesterday about an evolutionary theory of how beauty, the experience of beauty evolved in nature, this particular, it was a Darwinist who argued that from the experience of birds, how birds have all these colors and crests and uh, different sizes and shapes, and these, this Darwinist is making the argument that these were not all for practical purposes, at least he's an ornithologist, that's what he thinks. There isn't necessarily a, pra a practical reason for all these. Some of them were just because Birds liked other birds to be beautiful and chose them for partners because they were beautiful. Anyway, it's an experience that we have. And when we really have that sense of beauty, it, at least for that time, gives us a sense of wonderfulness, of, of beauty of meaning in life. Another one of these sources, I think, is truth. Truth means something to us. We care about truth. The very fact that the notion of truth is under siege right now shows us how important truth is to our lives. Because our present situation suggests to many of us that without a strong sense of truth, our way of life would probably collapse. If there, is, if there is no truth in the world, or if truth is completely arbitrary and has nothing to do with the facts, it really is a collapse of our way of life. Our way of life would not work anymore. Because the, the idea of the truth is so central to the way we look at the world. So, truth is one of these things that, that gives a sense of meaning and order to our lives. It's central to our way of being. Science, by the way, is all about truth. It's a way of determining truth. So while science may make it harder to believe the old stories, it also opens up new avenues of understanding our world and new channels of perception and awareness, new possibilities for us to know our universe, and as a number of scientists have said, new possibilities for the universe to know itself through our process of knowledge. So truth is something that seems to be fundamental to our experience. And you might say again, is that something we made up? Or is it in some sense in the universe itself? And I'm going to suggest that it's in the universe in the sense that the universe is intelligible. It can be understood. And then it's our job to do the understanding. Many of us feel that we're in a battle to defend the very notion of truth. And that is a worthwhile struggle. 
It's something that is fundamental to a sense of meaningfulness about our lives. It's something we're going to have to defend, actually, by the way. We're going to have to stand up for truth. I want to suggest another source of meaning in our lives, and that is justice. And justice is also something that we have an intuitive sense of. We, we, you know what? When we hear that over 300 people have been gunned down in a mosque, we know that that's wrong. No, but we don't have to analyze. I don't have to convince you that that's wrong. We have an innate sense of justice which is offended that such a thing could happen. And we know in the core of our beings that that is unjust. There's no defense you can make for that. None. So, Ralph Waldo Emerson, for example, says we have an innate sense, an innate moral sense. We have a sense of truth, of justice, that, that is authoritative. But that doesn't mean that we might not argue about certain things, you know? We might not argue about what's justice in a certain case, but sometimes it's just so clear that you can't deny that. It's obvious. If we see something wrong taking place, we know it. We know that no one should be enslaved. We know that murder is wrong. We know that exploitation is unjust, that discrimination is unfair, that lying is immoral. We, we know these things. We have this sense within us that is a source of meaning in our lives. Again, the question arises, did we just invent this? And uh, again, without having really the qualifications to, to give you a good argument about this, there are some wonderful arguments about how this idea of justice evolved through an evolutionary process. We are inspired by the stories of justice, the liberation of Europe from the Nazis, the civil rights movement. These stories strike us to the core and we know these struggles have meaning to us and they give us a sense of dignity and sanity and purpose. And so in our time, we see the immorality of mass incarceration, of religious discrimination, and we know that these things are wrong. And so we're moved to pursue justice. And that pursuit it can be deeply meaningful to many of us and at some point, perhaps all of us, it can give life a sense of meaning to, to be on the bandwagon for justice because we know how deeply important that is to a sense of meaning about life. The last one I want to talk about this morning as a source of meaning is love. You know, even if we discounted all the others and said, ah, those don't really work, even if we put them all aside, love is profoundly important to almost all of us. It's just 
deeply precious in our lives when we experience it. We've known love. We have loved and been loved. And for many of us, maybe even most of us, this is one of the all-time best experiences in life. Times when we experience love. As James Taylor sang it in one of his songs, everyone knows that love is just the finest thing around. It's just the best you can want or hope for. So love gives our life meaning. And yes, it does hurt sometimes. It can be very painful indeed. But would we want to live without love? Would we give that up because it hurts sometimes? And I would suggest to you today that love is not just a human invention. It is, it is in the non-human universe as well. At least it sure seems that way when you get home and your dog just jumps all over you and starts licking your face and all this stuff. Or someone else's dog does that to you. You know those dogs, <laughs> they experience love. It, it may not be the, and then, you know, Many other animals do too. I mean, there's some wonderful videos of uh, events like this that you can, it's clear that it's not just human beings. We didn't create that. We are part of the evolution of that. I don't know if turtles experience love. I wanna, I wanna get some research on that. But maybe they do, I just don't know. But it's not just in humans. It's in Earth's creatures, this experience. And for us and them, it's, it's an experience that is capable of bringing us a sense of healing, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of meaning and purpose that is powerful and, and undeniable. I guess you can deny love. You can do that. You can take that path if you want to. By the way, that's the path of one of the great Christmas stories, which is a Christmas, our, our man Ebenezer Scrooge is the guy who decides to take the path without love. And then we see what happens to him. How that, how's that working for you, Scrooge? <laughs> By the way, one of our anniversary events, we're going to have a performance of, uh, of Christmas Carol. It's, it's not a full-on theatrical performance, but a dramatic reading. Uh, it's December 17th, is that right? December 17th, right here on Sunday morning. It's, it's, it's going to be lovely. So love is a powerful source of meaning that, that is in our world. It's, ex, it's accessible to us. If we say we create, I don't think we create that. I think there's a kind of arrogance in that. I think we, it's a potential. It's a potential in life. Some people say God is love. It's perfectly clear to me what somebody might mean by that. But you don't have to say it that way, but you could. But either way, love is so intensely meaningful to us. So today I offer these four, beauty, truth, justice, and love, as sources of meaning in our lives. There are more, I think. I'm, I'm sh quite sure there are more. I want to do creativity another time. 
that, that, I think that's one of them too. But these four are significant. And of course they can be mixed and blended together. For example, well, you know the famous saying by Keats, truth is beauty and beauty truth. You know the, uh, don't look at the Picasso quote right now, please, but I later look at that quote, I think that's a combination of his devotion to beauty and his devotion to love as a path in life. I think if you look at Martin Luther King, you see the path of love paired with justice. And I think if you look at so many of people who have lived meaningful lives, you see a devotion to one of these or more than one of these as the guiding light. I don't think these sources of meaning are totally human inventions. They, they exist as potentials in the world that we have been given, but they require our commitment to be actualized. We have to be committed to them. And they all come with risks, every one of them. So I cannot say whether life feels like it is worth living for anyone at any particular moment. If someone is depressed, they don't feel that life is worth living at that moment, perhaps. And Clarence Darrow is right that with consciousness comes pain. But I do believe that these sources of meaning that are available to us, whether by a God or just by the nature of the universe itself, are sufficient to give life meaning. And there will be different priorities between us and different commitments that we affirm. Some of us will be more drawn to one than the other, and there will sometimes be conflict. But the loss of the old literal stories does not render life worthless. I think that's an error. Does not render life worthless or thrust us into despair. But we will need to throw ourselves into one or more of these paths and we will experience losses along the way. Christmas, for example, does not become meaningless even if we know that the star is not an astronomical fact. We will find other ways to think about that star. It's about hope, it's about purpose, it's about a sense of direction. All the old stories can be looked at in that way. So as we enter the sacred season now, May the old symbols speak to us of contemporary guests, temporary quests for beauty, for truth, for justice, and for love. And I invite you to look in the old stories and find those elements. And may we find these sources of meaning alive in our lives I wish for you and for me, even if only for moments, here and there, brightening our path better than whiskey.